Blog Talk Radio. Well, good morning, Blog Talk listeners. This is Tom Hayes here in Beantown, USA. Boston, Massachusetts, on finally some good weather, and we have a great show this morning. Uh, Rebecca Tripp, the metaphysical flight attendant, is my co-host this morning. Uh, Rebecca, how are you? I'm very good, Tom. Good to hear your voice. You too, and uh, first of all, thank you so much for producing. You've you've moved into the ranks of of co-hosts who are actually producing this show and getting a special guest, uh, Aaron. Uh, uh, now, Aaron, how Aaron. Are you, because it's yeah. How do you pronounce the last name, Aaron? It's Kaju, actually. Kaju. Okay, I'm glad Kaju. I didn't yep. say Kadiyu. Kadiyu, because it, it is French. That's the right way to say it. But the American yeah. the Americans say uh, Kaju. <laughs> okay, Kaju. <laughs> and uh, so you are French. Well, oh, yeah. that's French descent. My my, my great, family great. Uh, has roots up in Canada. Oh, okay, great, great. I do a lot of uh, entertaining in the North Country, and I always love to uh, have fun with the uh, the Canadian accent. Uh, so um, I'm looking for. Last night I watched your video. I mean, and I was extremely impressed. And uh, so I'm kind of looking for. I took a screenshot. Uh, of one of the things before. All right, let me see. I got about a million <laughs> objects here. Um, but I, I'm going to read your bio. I think it's the best way to do it because it's pretty darn impressive. Aaron Kedju grew up in Dartmouth, Massachusetts, where his video production work and interest in local landmarks began at an early age. Still in high school, Aaron produced and directed Lincoln Park, the forgotten fun of Dartmouth Community Television. Aaron then pursued a bachelor's degree in communications media with a concentration in video production and documentary filmmaking at Fitchburg State College in Mass. Fenway, uh, Fenway Park, a timeless shrine and a time to reflect the history of Whalen Park, were both produced and directed for college credit. During this time, Aaron also independently produced and directed Inside the Bridgewater Triangle. Aaron graduated in the spring of 2005 and is currently involved in a number of freelance project uh projects so again very impressive and i think first of all there's a little bit of a story how um one of these the connection happened between you and rebecca so i'll leave that to either one of you to kind of talk about sure okay um, well, i'll jump in sure um, okay yeah um i met aaron not that long ago um and i was looking for somebody that could help me do some video work around where i live and Aaron's website came up on the internet, and I noticed he was right here in Dartmouth, the same town I'm living in right now. So um, we connected, and we've started doing some work together because I'm an author, and video is very important now to market yourself. So he came and um, shot the first video, and I, I put it out on uh, – I, I actually sent it. I think I let you know this morning, um, Aaron, that – I sent it to this website that I want to get on as a trainer, and they absolutely love it. He's he's awesome. He's so good. He knows exactly oh, what you. he's doing with his equipment, and he's a great director. And I, I I'm having a great time doing things with him. So, very exciting. 
Great. And I just found the uh, screenshot. Uh, here, here, are the, here are the credits. Writer, director of photography, editor, colorist, sound recordist, and sound designer. And as you certainly uh, exhibit that, I, again, I told you off air that I was extremely impressed with the work you did with Rebecca. I mean, just I've seen a lot of promo uh, videos, but never, ever uh, unequaled uh, and superb the way that you you uh, approach the whole thing. So why don't you, uh, before we get into the into the uh, the movie itself, why, can you want to give us a little uh, update? I'm really curious as to why you were, you know, you always hear the story of Steven Spielberg running around with a, a Super 8 movie uh, camera at the age of eight. And, you know, we all know the rest of that story. So what's your story? Uh, it's really not all that different from that, I guess. Um, I, I Probably around fifth or sixth grade, I um, I lived in a neighborhood with a bunch of kids my age. And we got a hold of uh, one of the one of the one of the families had a had a video camera, and we got a hold of it and made our own little movie, uh, you know, in the backyard. And ever since then, that's I had so much fun doing it then as a kid. Uh, at that moment, I was like, "This is what I want to do with my life. I want to make movies." And uh, when I was younger, my parents bought me my first video camera. I started tinkering around with that, making making movies. Then and uh, by the time I got to high school, uh, my biggest passion there was doing, uh, you know, I was, I was in the Dartmouth Community Television Program. It was a, a class that you could take for college credit that was tied in with local cable access, and you, you know, you would uh, go out in the community and film different events, which would then air on TV. So I really enjoyed that, and it carried right through to college, going up to Fitchburg State for video production. And they have a fantastic video production and communications program up at Fitchburg State. And I got out of Fitchburg State, and within six months, I I, uh, I landed my first job uh, with a small advertising agency in Rhode Island, doing uh, video production for them. I was basically their in-house video production specialist. Started out doing mostly editing, but by the time uh, my tenure ended there, I was also shooting a lot of video as well. Uh, I worked under uh, a gentleman named John Mahoney, who runs a company called Providence Video Works, and uh, he taught me more than I ever learned in school about shooting video probably the top videographer in Rhode Island, and he's uh, he's always very generous about sharing the secrets of the trade and, and techniques and whatnot. So it's just been uh, video production ever since I was in, uh, you know, fifth or sixth grade. <laughs> well, I tell you, the uh, Rebecca and I are always interviewing people, and, we, you know, the title of the program is Upbeat, and we love to hear this story, you know, and that you've got the classic story, following your passion and watching uh, fantastic things materialize. And obviously, you you know, you took a shot with um, this a documentary about the Bridgewater Triangle, and you got picked up by a national uh, network. Uh, kudos to you, Discovery Channel. Well, thank you. It, yeah, I mean, when I choose a topic... Um, for a documentary, I try to choose something that is locally accessible, but also has almost an international interest. And, you know, the paranormal is a very hot genre. A lot of people are into it. I mean, every major network has some sort of a ghost hunting, UFO hunting, Bigfoot hunting show. So we knew that there was an interest in the paranormal. We knew we had access to the topic because we lived in the area. It wasn't like we would have to travel to do this, this project. I already owned and operated my own video production company, so we had the tools available to us to make the film. So it just was kind of the perfect storm, and uh, we we just we tried to uh, produce a paranormal documentary that's different from anything else that's out there. 
Uh, it's very historical in nature. It's very journalistic and matter of fact. We uh, we collect the stories. We collect the, the uh, testimony from the experts and the local residents. We just present them in a manner that the goal is to let the viewer make their own uh, decision on whether they think there's any legitimacy to the Bridgewater Triangle or not. We weren't. I, we didn't feel that our job was to uh, jam any of this down anybody's throat and say, oh, this absolutely happened, this is true. We just were, you know, relaying the information and trying to package it, package it in a way that made sense to the viewers. Yeah, I, one of the things that I told Rebecca earlier uh, was, uh, as I was watching it, I said to myself, who wrote this? Because it's extremely well written. And then I found out it was you. Yeah, I, you know, I, um, I'm kind of a, uh, I don't know what you say. I guess you you got to have a little bit of OCD to, to work in this industry, I, I think, and you got to be a bit of a perfectionist. And I spent a lot of time writing that script, and I I, I had a job uh, when I when I when I finished with the advertising agency, I had a job for a year and a half working for a large car dealership, uh, doing their in-house uh, video production and radio production and a lot of print advertising. Uh, but I did have a lot of downtime when I was working there too. And all that downtime was spent basically writing the script for the Bridgewater Triangle. And, um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I probably was, uh, you know, working on things I probably shouldn't have been working on while I was on their time. But, uh, you know, I did get the script finished and, um, you know, it was, uh, it was pretty cool. Super. Did you, um, you know, I mean, so obviously you did a lot of research. Well, yeah, I mean, I had done that short 30-minute documentary on the Bridgewater Triangle when I was in college. It was more or less just a practice film. Um, but that that film was called Inside the Bridgewater Triangle, and essentially the script for that served as the foundation for the Bridgewater Triangle documentary. Uh, Inside the Bridgewater Triangle was only about 30 minutes long, so, I mean, the, the new film, the, the, the Bridgewater Triangle, is three times that length, its feature length, uh, you know, and it, and it the original film doesn't have doesn't match the new film in quality. It was more or less just a just an exercise in, in filmmaking when I was younger. Um, but you know, it was a good foundation for the, for the actual Bridgewater Triangle documentary in terms of uh, the structure of the script. Uh, you know, some of the language is similar. So it wasn't like we were starting from absolute scratch. We had a little bit of a template to work from uh, from the original film. Great. You know, I mean, when I when I saw everything that I saw last night, and then I saw your production, I didn't even know. How, I mean, there's so much that we could talk about with you, but I know that the listeners are going to want to hear about the paranormal. And so you did the. You know, I, I was a great fan, uh, and still am. I just haven't had the uh, occasion to listen to it recently. But coast to coast, just an amazing. Uh, you know, with Art Bell and I think George. I forget George's last name right now. George but, Norrie. Uh, yeah, Nori, yes, great, great. Uh, you know, both of those guys have amazing voices and an amazing way to uh, to grab the listener. So, I mean, that to me uh, was as significant as getting on the Discovery Channel because of the stature of that show. So why don't we approach this from what did you discuss there for three – you were on for three hours, is that right? Yeah, yeah, we were on for three hours. Um, we uh, – I had just on a whim sent an email to uh, the producers at Coast to Coast and explained what we were doing and sent them a link to watch the online screener. And then within a few days, I had an email back from George Knapp, who is one of the hosts on Coast to Coast. He he fills on on weekends a lot. And we were actually interviewed by George Knapp on a, I 
think it was a Sunday evening. I don't I don't remember it was back uh back in two thousand thirteen or fourteen. Um but yeah, they had us on I think it was in December or January of that year. Uh and it, we were on for three hours and you know, I was nervous about that going into it. I'm like, how the heck do you fill three hours of time? But it went by quick. They take a lot of commercial breaks because it's such a, a prominent show. Um, but that was quite an honor. I mean, that that is like the granddaddy of paranormal radio. Uh, to say that you were lucky enough to be on Coast to Coast, uh, you know, it means a lot in, in the paranormal realm. Uh, so, I mean, they just, they essentially just watched the, the link that we gave them, watched the film, and uh, highlighted uh, different aspects of the film that they were interested in learning more about or uh, scenes that they thought were interesting and stories that they thought were interesting and just had us elaborate uh, on those. I was on with... Um, Christopher Pittman, who's featured in that documentary. Uh, Christopher is a, a ufologist, and he also is an avid archaeology um, enthusiast. And he has been featured on that show, Ancient Aliens, on the History Channel multiple times. And he was, he's also been on Monsters and Mysteries in America on Discovery or Destination America. So he's no stranger to the, the, to the world of the paranormal and paranormal television so he's kind of a semi-recognizable name, and he was gracious enough to join me on the Coast to Coast broadcast. Um, but, you know, they they ran the gamut, really. Of, I mean, the Bridgewater Triangle is unique in that it's um, it's one of those places that is not known just for UFOs. It's not known just for ghost sightings. It's not known just for cryptozoological uh, occurrences. It, it, it's known for all of those things. And then you throw bizarre crime in there and... and uh, uh, it's it's kind of like a, a buffet of the unexplained, more so than just a paranormal hotspot. And there's not a lot a lot of regions across the world that can be equated to the Bridgewater Triangle. It's, it's it's unique in that in that fashion, and where you know a lot of times you don't see any crossover between the ghost hunting community and the ufologist community or the cryptozoological community and the ghost hunting community. You have crossover there, and so you have different researchers from the whole spectrum of paranormal uh, genres basically researching the Bridgewater Triangle. And, um, Interesting. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, was and I understand. Go ahead, yeah. C- continue. Go ahead. No, that, 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 was, that was it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I uh, you know, Rebecca's told me that you were kind of a skeptic about the paranormal, yet you were obviously intrigued enough to, you know, do this fantastic documentary and give the world and exposure and an insight to what's going on and what has gone on there. So, I mean, what what was your, first of all, your attraction, and what did you learn? I mean, tell us about some of the incidents. I think that, you know, again, the listener wants to hear about some of the events that happened that, you know, you go in as a skeptic or at least open, and did some of those events, like the UFOs or the cryptozoological, while wow, I had to learn that word last night, um, <laughs> did you come away thinking that there was some credence to all of this? Yeah, I, I, I tell people that I went into this project probably 99% skeptic when it comes to the paranormal, and I still walked away, you know, like a 95, 96% skeptic. But there were a few stories that we featured in the documentary that even as a skeptic, I kind of had to take a step back and scratch my head and say, you know, what's going on here? That's, that's kind of bizarre. Um, the first, which was... Um, a cryptid report that came out of Raynham. Uh, we interviewed a gentleman named Bill Russo, who back in 1990 had a bizarre encounter with a three or four foot tall creature in Raynham, just south of the Hockenbach Swamp, while he was walking his dog. 
and he used to work the night shift, and so he would get home around midnight, and the first thing that he would do is take his dog out for a walk. And he was walking his dog, and his dog tipped him off that something was stra- something was wrong. The dog started acting very scared, started shaking uncontrollably, and he started to hear this sound emanating from, from the woods. And I'll, I'll try to recreate the sound without sounding goofy. It went, uh, Iwachu, Iwachu, care, care, and it just kept repeating that phrase. And all of a sudden, this three- to four-foot-tall hair-covered creature according to Russo, walked out to uh, underneath a, an area of the road that was illuminated by a street lamp. Uh, and it then tried to uh, communicate with Russo, and it almost was like trying to beckon him, beckon him to come closer. And Russo claims that he was you know, paralyzed with fear. I guess the whole incident maybe took a couple of minutes to play out. And eventually, he and his dog just decided to go on their way. I mean, they were they were so afraid to get any closer to this thing that that, that they walked they walked away, and uh, he never again saw the creature. But the interesting thing about Bill Russo's report is that he waited 20 years to tell his story, and we just managed to find his story on a on a through a Google search, and he posted it to his his own personal blog, and. We decided, all right, let's reach out to this guy and see if he's willing to tell his story. And he's a very good writer. And the story was so well written that I was like, is this even a true story or is this a fabrication? But I was able to get in touch with him, and uh, he said, oh, no, that really happened. And I you know, I wrote, put the story on my blog, and he was gracious enough to agree to do his first ever interview on what he saw. And when the film came out, it was basically like our ace in the hole. It was, it was one of these stories. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we talk about in the film are well-known stories in the Bridgewater Triangle. They've been researched people talk about him, but Bill Russo's creature encounter was relatively unknown uh, at the time, and we kind of broke that story in, in the format that we broke it, and then he actually went on to be featured on Monsters and Mysteries in America on uh, Destination America, uh, largely due to being in our film first. They kind of asked him to retell that same story again uh, for their show, but that story just, uh, Bill Russo, if you, if you see the film, you know, if somebody could tell you a story like that, and you could immediately say, oh, yeah, they're, they're so full of it, they're, they're lying, or they're not telling the truth. But there's something about him, he just comes across as so genuine and, and, and so honest, and he just seems like he could be like anybody's grandfather's like gentle gentle soul. And I remember doing the interview, and I, and I got the hair on my arm stood up when he started telling the story, and I remember thinking, I was like, this guy is, whether he saw something or not, I can't say, but he is absolutely convinced that he saw something that cannot be explained. And uh, it was a very, as far as I'm concerned, it was a very gripping uh, part of the film. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that impressed me, Rebecca, do you want to say anything about what, how you observed the film and that particular story and some of the other uh, interviewees? Well, I grew up in this area, too. I mean, I've, we've always heard stories about um, the Bridgewater Triangle and the Freetown Forest, which is part of it. And um, I was just amazed with the different, the variety, like you said, of incidents, you know, Bigfoot, UFOs, little creatures, you name it. All these things are happening there, which is pretty unique. Um, And I think that is what gives it a worldwide um, interest. You know, in the people who are interested in the paranormal find this, that particular area to be quite unique. Um, I think the Bigfoot story, too, was, was really fascinating. You know, there were a couple of people that, that witnessed that and the Thunderbirds. I've heard, I'd always heard stories about these big birds flying out of that area with huge wingspans. And, 
I guess they called them the Thunderbirds. But the the history there is is really quite fascinating. And having seen UFOs in this area, I totally believe that these people have had these experiences, and they are so credible. The ones that we see interviewed on on his documentary. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. That, uh, go ahead, Aaron. Go ahead. No, no, yeah. Uh, before, I mean, if you want to talk more about Bill Russo saying, uh, or we could, you know, move on to some UFO stuff. Yeah, let's talk. No, no, a no. Bit about uh, well, a lot of people are really fascinated. So many people have seen the UFOs in you know in our population now. Well, oh, um, yeah. we do talk about what is probably the most high-profile, well-known UFO report to ever come out of the Bridgewater Triangle, and it was back in 1979, the spring of 1979. Two WHDH news reporters uh, both witnessed uh, a large, low-flying, slow-flying UFO over the Route 106 exit off of 24 in, in Bridgewater, uh, Bridgewater. They were on their way to the Rain of Dog Track, which is another location that had a lot of uh, unexplained occurrences. But they were on they were on their way to the dog track after work to watch some races and have a couple drinks. And uh, they pulled off the exit, and they saw this, like I said, very low, very slow, gigantic, uh, unidentified flying object fly over their car. And they described it as being in the shape of a baseball home plate. And uh, one of the gentlemen named Steve Sprazier said he estimated that it was like five 747s wing-to-wing in the sky. So you imagine how large this this craft would have been. And the interesting thing about what they saw is at that time, the Brockton Enterprise was collecting a lot of first-hand eyewitness accounts to this exact same craft, uh, sighted in areas, you know, even outside of the Bridgewater Triangle on the South Shore, uh, maybe heading up towards Boston a little bit. Um, and they feature a lot of these reports in this newspaper article, but they also had the newspaper sketch artists uh, draw a composite of what these people claimed that they were seeing, and it was dead on to what uh, Jerry Lopes and Steve Sprager claimed that they saw, who they were the two news reporters. And to me, that was a really interesting, I mean, how do you refute what, you know, hundreds of people are coming, coming, coming forward and saying that they're seeing and, you know, whether it was of an extraterrestrial origin, I don't know. Maybe it was some sort of a top-secret government aircraft that hadn't been uh, released, that they were testing, test-flying. I guess we'll never know for sure what it was. But, I, again, once again, like Bill Russo's story, I don't know what he saw was something that can't be explained. But in this case, uh, I definitely believe that all these people were telling the truth. And we even feature a third witness named, uh, named uh, uh, Ron Baker who claims to have seen that same craft in Easton in uh, 1979. So that was another part of the documentary that, even as a major skeptic, I found to be very intriguing. Well, today you got another one right here. <laughs> oh, really? I saw that craft. Yeah, I was in... Uh, oh, by the way, uh, Rosemary Young is joining us from... Uh, Rosemary is also a host on some of the other shows, and... Uh, Rosemary is uh, an empath and uh, a medium, and she's joining us from Hancock. I mean, hey, Rosemary, how are you? Hey, Tom, how you doing? Good. Good. I just want to talk about the. Uh, um, I saw so it was it was in August, uh, probably about eight years ago, a little less. And I was uh, it was a in August. Of course, we have the meteor showers, the uh, the shooting stars. And we had been out, and uh, so he was he had nice enough to give me a room in his beautiful home down there, and it had a balcony. 
And so I said, you know, I just kind of said, well, I'm going to kind of sit here and watch this uh, amazing show. And, of course, it was beautiful down there because there were no lights. And I just saw this constant shower of amazing shooting stars. And all of a sudden, I uh, something was weird. I couldn't, something wasn't right. All of a sudden, huge chunks of sky were being blocked out. And I'm like, what the heck is that? You know, I would see a, a group of stars, and then they were gone. And then all of a sudden, I noticed motion that whatever it was, as whatever it was, was passing. And I didn't discern it as an object. I just saw a sky disappearing. And then I discerned it, it almost looked like a stealth bomber, that tri- triangular uh, shape that they had talked about. And then I saw that it was a craft. And again, you've got black against black, so uh, it was really hard. To, but I kept staring and staring. And then the size of it was the part that blew me away. They said the size of five or six, but to me it looked like, because it was, it was extremely high up, it looked almost like it was the equivalent of Martha's Vineyard, just this mothership. And, you know, wow. and you're right, was it, was it ours, was it not? But if we, ever, if we do possess that, <laughs> I don't know why there are any wars, because, you know, it would be over in seconds, you know. <laughs> well, that, that's, that would be my point. I mean, this was 1979. These gentlemen saw what they saw. And at some point you would figure that it would have come out that th- this nation was working on some sort of, of craft of that nature. But I guess, you know, a lot of classified information that the public will never know. So I guess it's not outside their own possibilities. But your sighting, you know, sounds very similar to uh, what these gentlemen claim that they saw. Now, did you hear any sound along with it, or was it just... No, it was far away, and it was, as they said, what shocked me was that it was so slow-moving. Yep. You know, it was in no hurry. I mean, by the immensity of the thing. Now, here's interesting... um, CBS did a UFO program years ago, and it was the first major national uh, network to do that, uh, concentrating on UFOs, and gave two hours to it. And at the time, Art, I was an avid listener of Art Bell, and he was, they gave him a couple of minutes on the program. He saw the exact same craft, and there was wow. a story of where this craft had flown over five or six states, and they have the recorded police radio, um, you know, from from officers who were out in their cruisers, giving testimony. And then the adjoining county would pick up and and say, "Okay, we got it in our sights. Yeah, here it's here. Boom!" And it moved from, you know, I guess from all the way across the Midwest, you know, Illinois into Ohio, into upstate New York, and then even further. So, um, yeah, that craft has gotten a lot of uh, attention, and I saw it, and I'll tell you, it scared the wits out of me when I finally realized it was a craft. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I mean, we, we came across so many people. Uh, and just, you know, the UFO aspect of the Bridgewater Triangle, up, up until doing the film, was probably my least favorite aspect of it. I knew it was important to talk about, but out of all the subjects, it interested me the least. But it's funny that that, section of the film ends up being one of the most powerful just because of the, the amount of first-hand eyewitnesses that we were able to get um, in that part of the film. And now it's actually one of my favorites, especially with that story with uh, Steve Lopes and Jerry, uh, Jerry Lopes and Steve Sprasia. Uh, I thought that was a really, really neat part of the part of the film. Yeah, I mean, it was an eye-opener for me. Again, I have to, and I, Rebecca, you saw it. 
uh, I, I was extremely impressed with the interviewees. And they were smart people, really smart. They were no, you know, you, you weren't in, <laughs> interviewing a bunch of people in, in the backwoods who, you know, who saw all kinds of these crazy things. These were people extremely well-read, extremely well-dressed, uh, public, you know, authors, uh, so, I mean, how did you find that experience of finding such qualified uh, interviewees? Well, as a skeptic, um, I felt that was really important to try to get some credible on the record about about the Bridgewater Triangle. And we were fortunate enough to get, you know, it started with Lauren Coleman. I mean, you can't talk about the Bridgewater Triangle without talking about Lauren Coleman. I mean, he's the guy who came up with the whole concept of the Bridgewater Triangle back in the late 1970s. And we felt, you know, if we're going to do this documentary, we've got to get Lauren Coleman on board. And we were fortunate enough to, to land him for the film. And, you know, he's a well-known author. I mean, he wrote Mysterious America, and he's written many, many books uh, specifically on, on cryptid animal uh, encounters and sightings. And he's probably the world's most well-known cryptozoologist. And we were able to go up to his uh, museum up in Portland, Maine, the International Cryptozoology Museum, and that's where we actually shot the interview with him, and he gave us uh, a lot of his time. And I don't think it would have been the same film without him, uh, because, like I said, you can't. How can you do a, a feature-length documentary in the Bridgewater Triangle without talking to the guy who came up with the concept? So it started with Lauren Coleman, but you know, along the way, we were able to talk to a number of people, all of whom have written books about. Uh, either the Bridgewater Triangle or unexplained occurrences in the Bridgewater Triangle region. We were able to get uh, one of my favorite interviews is the one with Jeff Belanger. Uh, he um, is a younger guy who has done a lot of writing on, on uh, the unexplained and the paranormal, but he also uh, is a writer for Ghost Adventures on the Travel Channel. So he's no stranger to you know the big time in this industry, but you know he took the time to to, to come down and be interviewed for our film. And he's just so articulate and so witty and, and funny. Uh, he has a little bit of levity to what is otherwise a pretty dark topic. And, um, you know, Jeff's, Jeff's a great guy, and I just, you know, r- really enjoyed working with him as well. And like I said, we had Chris Pittman, who's been featured on Ancient Aliens and done extensive research in the Bridgewater Triangle. We had Christopher Balzano, who's written three books, or two books specifically, about the Bridgewater Triangle and a third book about uh, like a ghost hunting guide book that we, we talk about later in the film. And, uh, you know, we've got guys like Tim Weisberg, who's the host of uh, Spooky South Coast on WBSM in New Bedford. Uh, and he's also written extensively about the paranormal and, and written about the Bridgewater Triangle. And so we just we're, we're so lucky to have such a, a panel of, of diverse, a diverse panel of, of uh, you know, like you said, uh, articulate, well-spoken uh, experts in the field. And then that's not to mention, you know, the uh, first-hand eyewitness accounts of people that, you know, took a chance or rolled the dice to, to go out, to go public with what they saw, you know, and to take the risk of facing some sort of ridicule because of it. But, you know, we got a number of people to come forward and tell their stories, which was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it must have, it, it comes across as, of, of all of the things that I've watched, <clears throat> certainly the uh, most credible uh, in, in terms of we, the ability to find uh, those scholars, uh, you know, these were again. All, now, hey, one thing, Rebecca, remember the uh, scene where uh, the lights went out? Yes, that was very, very shocking. <laughs> you first think yeah. something happened to the, the the video, and then um, 
I think Aaron had something really interesting to say about that because um, you weren't expecting that, were you? And it's it's no. kind of unusual to get something like that on film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know that was you know with Bill Russo's story, the the UFO story, and that incident are the three things that I walked away from that really you know made me scratch my head. Like I said, but that incident is the closest thing that I've ever experience to what somebody might consider a paranormal occurrence or an unexplained occurrence. Uh, other than that, I've never experienced anything in my life. But just to give a quick little back backstory on that, uh, we were lucky enough to interview Christopher Baldano. And he's from Florida, so he was up in Massachusetts for uh, like only a couple of days. And we decided to tag along and videotape his guided tour of the Freetown State Forest. When the tour was over, he was supposed to go do a book signing in Dartmouth, but he locked his keys in his car in the middle of the Freetown State Forest, so we had to wait for AAA. And I figured, you know, we're going to be sitting here waiting for AAA for at least an hour. I don't. This guy lives in Florida. I may never never see him again. Uh, this is my chance to shoot a, uh, an interview. So if you if you look at the interviews in that film, most of them are really professional and really well lit and, and whatnot. But Chris Balzano's is the most uh, raw and gritty because it was never supposed to happen in the first place. So it was just like get the camera out, find some sort of a light source, and the sun was setting, so the light kept changing and whatnot. But at least we were able to get the interview. And Andrew Lake, who was also featured in the film, was on that, that shoot that day, and he had brought a battery-operated camera light, he, and he put a brand-new set of Duracells in, and we used that for the Chris Balzano interview in the Freetown State Forest. And he started talking about uh, a location in Rehoboth called Anawan Rock, which is uh, a allegedly haunted location that was official site of the end of King Philip's War, which was the bloodiest war in America uh, in American history on a per capita basis. It essentially, served as the breaking point between the Wampanoag Indians and the European settlers. And it, uh, you know, Native American folklore and uh, Native American history is tightly woven into the story of the Bridgewater Triangle. And Chris was talking about how when uh, Anawan, who was uh, the leader of the last band of Wampanoags at the time, when he surrendered to Captain Benjamin Church at Anawan Rock, he presented Church with a wampum belt, which was uh, told that it was a uh, uh, basically a pictograph that told the oral history of the Wampanoag people woven into this belt, and he presented it to Benjamin Church as a sign of his surrender. And the belt has since disappeared from history. Nobody knows what happened to it. It could be in a museum over in England. It could be at the bottom of the Atlantic that sunk on a boat on a cross-Atlantic journey. But nobody knows where the belt is. And Chris Baldano was talking about one of the theories is that the odd occurrences in the Bridgewater Triangle will continue until the belt is returned to its rightful owners, the Wampanoag people. And while he was talking about this, the light shut off. And you see it in the film. Mm. We let it play out organically. And... You know, we get the lights back up and running, and Matt Moniz, who was uh, is another researcher that was on that shoot, you hear him say, hey, Chris, do you realize that the light shut off when you were talking about the lump of belt? And everybody got kind of a chuckle out of it, and Chris kind of got a chuckle out of it. And at that point, I was like, guys, you know, it's just a strange coincidence. You know, it's a battery-operated light. These things happen. Well, Chris jokingly turns to his right as if he's, like, talking to a ghost and says, we hear your message. If we could, we would return it. And as soon as he said return it, the light shut off again. And it just, I mean, I, I, the hair on my neck stood up, the hair on my arms stood up. We were already in the middle of the Freetown State Forest at night, which serves as a spooky backdrop for any anybody who's shooting anything like that. And for that light to shut off that second time in direct response to his, his, his basically teasing the ghost or the alleged ghost, um, 
I, I was blown away. And it was one of those moments that all these ghost hunting shows on television would kill to get something like that on film. And we weren't even trying. It just happened completely organically. So it was pretty pretty amazing. Well, you know, you're talking to uh, three individuals who who have had the experiences. Rebecca, you you saw the UFOs come up. We've talked about it many times on the show, come up over from across from Martha's Vineyard to where right. you were in New Bedford. You know, mm-hmm. and Rosemary, as I said, is an empath, and she's, uh, you know, she's dead on with uh, specifics. I, an ex-girlfriend got in touch with me through Facebook, and she wanted to know, um, you know, if uh, Rosemary could do anything about communicating with her father. And, Rosemary, why don't you tell her how you you, you came up with the, the exact name, nickname? Yes. Uh, we, you know, we were well into our conversation, and... It just it kept kept coming to me, coming to me, and I said, "Well, I said I really there's one thing I really have to ask you." So it has to do with a little nickname that your father called you when you were little, and uh, I'm pretty sure it was uh, Pumpkin, Little Pumpkin, and she just, you know, it, it was very emotional. There was so much emotion, and all she could say, she said, "Yes, that's him," and yeah. it just it was strong, very strong. So we've all had these experiences, and one of the uh, we were supposed to have the main ghost hunters on a little bit. Their schedule got kind of messed up, and we were supposed to reschedule. But I watched one of their YouTube videos, and it's interesting, the phenomenal connection with the lights. They use a flashlight to um, give some kind of indication if they are communicating, and the light will go on and off. So I think that in the um, paranormal realm, that experience uh, is pretty uh, common with the, um, the, the you know light, especially battery-powered. Yeah, it was. Um, it's funny because when the light goes off, you hear Andrew Lake in the background say, "Those are fresh batteries. That's a brand new set of batteries. I just put those in." And I watched him put the batteries in in the light, and you know those lights can last for quite a while with fresh batteries in them. Um, and I'll just I'll never forget it. And uh, it's one of those things when people watch the film, they think it was some sort of an edit mistake, or uh, you know, because the film's pretty tightly edited to that point, there's not any edit mistakes. Right, and then all of a sudden, it, you know, the light shut off, and then you see the light come back on. Everybody's like talking as if the camera's not rolling. Um, so it's just, it's just funny, and, and everybody that sees it, you know, it's like, did you guys fake that? You know, did you guys make that up? It's like, no, absolutely not. We would never do something like that, especially as a skeptic. You ruin the whole credibility of the film if you if you fake right. evidence. And uh, so it no, it played out completely organically as it did live. Wow, and now. You know, one of the things that the the police officer um, at the end talked about was that he hated to go in there, uh, especially at night. And you talked about a feeling. Did you experience that uh, feeling? Yeah, and, you know, that's one of those things that as a skeptic I kind of analyze in my head. You know, we did do some shooting in the Freetown State Forest. I've been in, in the Freetown State Forest at night many times. But as far as I'm concerned, the human mind is a very powerful thing. And if you are going to a location that has a reputation for being haunted or being a place where the unexplained has happened, you're going in at night, your imagination is automatically going to start running running wild with you. And you're going to get excited. And even if you're a skeptical guy, and I still, you know, I get a little, my palms get a little sweaty, my heart rate increases. Um, and then when you go to a location like that, if you hear, you know, crashing around in the woods or you hear twigs breaking, 
instead of the logical, you know, it's probably a deer or a squirrel, you automatically are like, oh, something paranormal or something unexplained. <laughs> so, I mean, to say I went in there and got a weird feeling, yeah, I did, but, you know, I went into that location with a preconceived notion of what that location is known for. And uh, so to say that the strange feeling that I had was something, you know, was triggered by, you know, the greater forces at work or whatever, I can't say that because, you know, like I said, the human mind is a very powerful thing. But I did, you know, of course I, I you know, had a very strange, unsettled feeling going into the Freetown State Forest. And every time I've been in there, I get that same feeling. Uh, but, you know, I don't know if it's, it's just my mind playing tricks on me or not. And, Aaron, what's yeah, the what? back on the red-headed um, hitchhiker? Why? Why is he seen um, hitchhiking? Did he die in the forest? No, the and actually, head- he's he, he's seen along uh, Route 44 in Rehoboth, so he's uh, oh. on the other side of the triangle from the Freetown State Forest. Mm-hmm. That's one of those stories, and you know, urban legend uh, weaves itself into the story of the Bridgewater Triangle with stories like the red-headed hitchhiker of Route 44, or the you know the mad trucker of Copacut Road, which is actually in the Freetown State Forest. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, those stories. It's, it's one of those things where we, we make, basically make light of it in the film that you never hear from a direct eyewitness usually about the red-headed hitchhiker. You hear from somebody whose sister's brother's roommate's cousin saw it or something like that. Um, and it's just, you know, one of these classic on-the-road type stories that, you know, when you're driving along Route 44 in Rehoboth, you'll see this guy who's, you know, got, you know, scraggly red hair, beard, wearing coveralls, uh, overalls and jeans and a, pla- a flannel shirt trying to hitch a ride around along Route 44. And the stories are that, you know, he'll disappear mm-hmm. or he'll mess with the radio on your car. And the origin of this alleged phantom uh, has never been confirmed. There's nobody that's ever found, like, an article in the newspaper saying that, like, an old farmer had died. You know, everybody says, you know, it's an old farmer that died, but, you know, you don't actually find the evidence or proof of that. Um, it's a fun story, uh, and, you know, it, it does weave itself into the, to the, to the overall fabric of the Bridgewater Triangle, but whether it's something like Chris, Chris Pittman said, whether it's something that can be proved through scientific uh, research, you know, it, it's more or less just a legend that he, you know, mm. he thinks it's more or less just a legend. And I kind of feel the same way, but it is a fun story. And that was a really fun uh, chapter in the film to, to talk about the redheaded hitchhiker. Yeah. And I love well, you Bigfoot know, because you only yeah. hear about Bigfoot usually back in the, up in the Northwest, you know, Mount Shasta or Tibet. But to think that they're right here in the Freetown Forest or the Bridgewater Triangle is fascinating to me. Well, yeah, we featured two eyewitness reports of Bigfoot sightings. One was the most well-known is by an eccentric gentleman from Bridgewater named Joseph DeAndre, whose character by him, I mean, he could be a documentary film by himself. He's a very interesting guy. Uh, he claimed he saw Bigfoot at a pond in Bridgewater called Claybanks in 1978. And then we had Carlston Wood, who was an avid paranormal enthusiast, uh, who claimed to have seen Bigfoot in the Hockamock Swamp in Bridgewater in uh, 1970 while playing with a bunch of kids out on the frozen uh, swamp. And we also feature a story, eyewitness uh, account from John Baker, who was a trapper on the Hockamock Swamp, uh, who allegedly saw Bigfoot uh, back in 19, back in the 1980s, and his story was featured in the Boston Herald. And we, we do actually feature a little reenactment of what he saw. He since passed away, so we weren't able to interview him directly. But, you know, there are, you know, a lot of Bigfoot reports specifically out of the Hockenbach Swamp region. Um, even today, people go in there and they claim that they find Bigfoot tracks and, and things like that. So the, the, the Bigfoot stories in, in the Hockenbach region continue today. 
Wow. You know, we're going to get shut off in about a minute. I just want to, if you can do it real quickly, that really harrowing scene of the woman look like she's being possessed. You want to talk a little bit about that? But, again, remember, we only got about a minute. Uh, We're under the gun. I know uh, that was on a DVD that was sold with the book uh, Picture Yourself, Ghost Hunting by Chris Balzano. It was an uh, expedition of the Freetown State Forest where this woman named Maureen claims that she was being possessed by what they call the puck wedgie, and she ended up, you know, throwing herself on the ground and had to be restrained. Uh, we featured that because it's one of the more well-known puck related incidents, alleged incidents in the Freetown State Forest. Now, whether she was putting on a show or not, I can't say. I didn't shoot that footage, you know, that was provided to us, but it does make for an okay, intriguing, okay. Uh, intriguing part of the film. Exactly. But, uh, hey, listen, Aaron, this was been a blast. I, Rebecca, thank you for putting this together. Rosemary, thank you for jumping in and sharing your part. Aaron, will you come back? Because we've only scratched the surface. I, I'd, I'd be honored to come back, and I, I really appreciate you guys having me on. Any any opportunity we have to talk about the film helps us immensely. Um, and so Great. we're honored to be on, on your show today. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you, ladies. Thank you, yes. All right, have oh, have a you. great day. All right, bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.